I'd say our, our largest setback of why we cannot advance in this country, uh, whether you're of the same ethnic origin, national origin, or, or just of the same faith origin is the way that we communicate. We listen to respond. We don't listen to receive. And it's simply said, <laughs> but it's so challenging for us to do especially when emotions are, are all embedded throughout us. When we're angry and, and we're trying to um, have dialogue with one another, we're not talking to listen to what the other person had to say. We're trying to get our point across and we're trying to be heard and we're trying to be listened to and we want some type of vigor to be thrown behind that. When we're excited, we're not talking to listen to what somebody went through when i when i communicate with my wife um that's one of the the setbacks that i have one of the flaws i have many flaws that i do have it by the way <laughs> but one of the, the the flaws that i have is, is my communication style and tactic um if something is is bogging me down i'm not in the, the best listening mode and the challenge i also have with that uh within the suppression olympics pieces um the fine line between personal and professional. When I'm in my professional setting and I'm doing pastoral care and counseling, I use my ears that God gave me. I use, I understand I have two ears and two eyes for a reason um, and one mouth for a reason. And I'm not talking as much, uh, but when I'm with my wife, it's like my ears have completely fallen off. Yeah, you're in a raw emotional space where you are your vulnerable self. You are in a place of complete trust. You want to just share what is on your heart or your body or your mind or whatever. You don't want to have to be this ministerial or pastoral presence. You need Absolutely. to be received, not be the Absolutely. receiver. Definitely, definitely. And when I look at my, my gifts and community organizing, I mean, one of the main principles that we learn in Gamaliel or um, in Pico is self-interest what is that individual's self-interest why, why am i talking with them what am i trying to gain from this but what is what is their self-interest it, it might be you know i, I just want to make money it, it might be i care about health care i want to get universal health care it might be racial equity and justice but when an oppression olympics exists it's hard to find a way in which that we can find uh as I would say, uh, self-interest of that individual, because we're more concerned about me, myself, and I. I've got Tupac Shakur, uh, native of Baltimore, if you will, <laughs> uh, with his, his um, uh, amazing allegorical album, uh, A Rose That Grew From The Concrete. He uh, eloquently says uh, in, in a feature that he had in one of his songs, um, you gotta get yours, I gotta get mine. But if society is training us to be selfish in that nature, and that's what it is, it's selfish, right? You know, I gotta get, I gotta get mine, you gotta get yours, you know? That's, that's how the world goes around, money makes the world go around. We'll never see our generations that are going to be more gregarious, more giving, more gifted as we move forward in this, in this new world. We're just going to keep on seeing these patterns these pedagogies of pain and lack of promise. Yeah, I would say there's a fatalism in that attitude, which 
for me growing up in white privilege for sure you know and and a really benevolent white privilege i had a, a pastor father and a, a teacher slash principal mother two people whose entire lives were service and i grew up in a community of white christians who were very invitational very welcoming the whole ethos was hey welcome how can we help you what's going on with you and i look at the world and i can't understand why this is not one of the things we're building our future on and this is part of why i do all the work that i do because i believe that's by far the better way that, that we should be trying to explore the condition other people are in and help each other so we can all move forward as you said and yet we have this kind of fatalistic culture that dominates at the moment where it's you know i have to get mine so see you later <laughs> yeah definitely definitely um and that's a that's a really good point that that, that you bring um i think about the, the the word racism and racist and there are so many folks to this day um they believe on a more um mental health spec perspective that racism is something that people are born as and i've always rejected that again i go back to the whole um metaphor concept of thugs races aren't born humans are born when you are a product of the environment whether that's the household the community the context that you're spending your formative years in or your vulnerable years in you just lost a job and now you had to remove somewhere and, and you have to relearn your identity in order to move forward that's what creates a racist. That's what creates vigilantes. That's what creates uh, individuals that are beaten, battered, and bruised, and they want to do the same and cause harm to individuals. Because hurt people hurt people. I will never believe that a racist is born. I don't believe uh, what's his name, um, Adolf Hitler, was born with that in his heart. <laughs> right. There's some kind of trauma that that occurred, most likely. It's, it's hard to imagine just a, a purely psychotic Damien, uh, whatever that movie was in the 70s or the 80s. That oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this evil spawn is born, devil spawn is born. You know, I've never, never really seen that substantiated, but we have that meme in our culture. And that's one of the reasons people are fatalistic is they think that that's out there. Right, right. And I'm trying to see how do we, as people of faith, um, move from a fatalistic mindset more into a fearless and a faithful mindset. I'm wondering what it's gonna to take to get there. I wanna jump in and say, so, okay, one of the amazing things you've done, it's hard for me to believe this number is correct, but 30 community gardens, right? So that's a, that's a generative process. That's a cultivation and a nurturing process. That's literally planting a garden and seeing um, the healing that comes from from all of that and and perhaps as a fair metaphor for how to move forward it also in one way ties to kind of what all creation is about connecting people to a deeper relationship with diverse biodiversity right. which of course includes racial diversity and cultural diversity and and um, gender diversity and you know all of the different forms of human diversity but ha have you found maybe in in um and what you're about to say, have you found that there has been somewhat of a pathway towards healing 
from trauma in that kind of work where you you um, connect people to gardening, connect people to a, a different focus that's not about defensiveness, it's instead about cultivation, process, maybe more of a Kairos earth kind mm -hmm. of uh, orientation to at least part of their day or their week. Have you seen that be transformative? Definitely. Um, one of the biggest challenges uh, in finding the intersectionality of people of African descent and uh, eco-justice was based off of their context, the culture, their community that they were developed in. Uh, many people of African descent believed that anything environmental was a white thing. I'd love to hear about that, but we, we're going to have to do three more podcasts. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, but they really believed that that was a white issue. That was a white thing. Uh, so I spent so much time trying to teach people of African descent, of African-American culture, to be specific, that this issue actually impacts us more than any other culture, uh, domestically speaking. Air quality control, lack of equal access to sustainable food, lack of equal access to clean running water. I mean, we still have lead in our, our water system here in Baltimore. Uh, but also saying that climate change is real, where our violence rates on the south side of Chicago, west side of Chicago, in West Detroit, in Houston, Texas, in South Central LA, in Atlanta, Georgia, on the south and on the west side, those rates, including East St. Louis, they increased in the summertime. They decrease in the winter. There is an environmental aspect to that that creates environmental violence, which under that umbrella we, we see, or above the rung in that same umbrella, we see environmental racism. Areas that are redlined that have lack of equal access to opportunities and sustainable nutrition. But then we also see the environmental justice being the, the actual umbrella itself. So when I think about the therapeutic nature of gardening, it took me a while to get community to buy into that concept. Especially church folk, I love church folk. Because, you know, the church folks were the ones who we love to, you know, uh, do all the stuff in the Bible and talk about it on Sunday, that most segregated hour of the, of the year, of the week. Uh, but, you know, when we leave the four walls, we close our Zoom, uh, when we get off of Facebook and IG and all those other platforms, you know, we go back to being who we really are. So when we were building community gardens at our congregations, um, using grant money, using uh, tithes and offering to offset some of the costs to buy seed, to buy, um, to buy these different uh, plots and the soil and doing the work and getting these amazing, um, delicious uh, plants and different fruits and different vegetables. Yeah, uh, fresh, fresh vegetable out of the garden is like a good night's sleep, you know, it just oh, yeah. gives you energy that you didn't know was available. Right. When we were doing it and these, our agriculture was going quote unquote missing overnight, every single week, the people in the congregation were the ones that were the most upset. I was the one as pastor who was the most thankful for it. 
because we finally put flesh on that word community. We put a meaning on it, meaning this is open to the community. But I'm fighting people, Chris, who are church folks that said, no, we put the money, we put the work into this. This should be first given to the church, then given to the community. And I wrestled with that for so long. To this day, I'm still heated about it. <laughs> but I, I have to learn that uh, when I was able to find ways to get folks who are not from our community that were, uh, I would say, reaping what we were sowing, when I was able to find people who lived in the community, who never set foot by the church, who probably threw rocks at the church, who were reaping what we were sowing, when I was able to just get in dialogue with them, I was hearing some of the most phenomenal stories I'd ever heard. I'm a single father of five. I'm a single mother of two. I, I can't go to save a lot, which is our closest grocery store. I don't have the transportation. I don't have my benefits. I don't have EBT. I don't know how to cook. We had to reshape the way in which that we wanted to be impactful and effective in an authentic manner in our community. So we started doing farmers markets. Authentic and, and, and relevant, right? To the relevant, huge. I'm so thankful for, for you saying that, Chris. Yeah, we, we had to be uh, real relevant and relatable. And I say the word we and not me, because in my story, I'm talking about how I had to meet people where they are. So that was a secondhand nature to me, but that's not the same for church people. <laughs> so they're still stuck in the mindset of, well, we added up all the money. We added up all the work. It's our blood, sweat, and tears that created this. Why are they getting a piece of, of, of what is due to us? And Chris, let's definitely have this conversation of my, in my sanctified imagination of what I believe being a steward is. Uh, when I think of uh, the word stewardship, the word steward, I look at it as we're, we're managers of God's mission field for just a season. But I have to be careful using that word steward because I learned through you, Chris, that that does have a negative connotation in other cultures. So now it's how do I create um, a theological philosophy, but also a humanistic philosophy to be able to reach people where they are so that I can teach them that right now, none of this stuff is yours. That Beamer, Benz and Bentley, that bank account that you have, the bills that you have, yes, you, you're dealing with it for right now, but the Lord giveth and the Lord can take it. So when I was looking at all the community gardens that we were building, it only happened when we were able to fi finally and fully embrace the community that we were serving because the congregations were suitcase churches. They didn't live in the community. When they finally made it, whatever that looked like, got their job, their little piece of land, their house, uh, that new car they always wanted, their retirement, their pension, they were able to finally move to the suburbs and just come into the city whenever it was time to go to church during that you know segregated hour that we talked about. But when I had to teach them that if folks are taking the food, it's a community garden for a reason. It's not a congregational garden. 
They wanted to build fences to keep people out so that only they could have access to what was inside the fence. But I had to shift their mindset to say, we are the only church on this block in this community. If a fire were to happen, if we were to be burglarized, if a drive-by were to happen, you want to have the trust, the respect, and the relationship of your surrounding neighbors on your side during any of those things. There were so many times that uh, at St. Philip's in particular in East Baltimore where I was served, I, I saw that there were so many um, issues around theft, mailboxes being stolen, the building being broken into. And because of my relationship with people in the projects, because of my relationship with people in different um, government-based housing, different neighbors that I was working in this community garden eager park with, they were able to be our natural security and say, they were the first ones to notify me, hey, Pastor, you know, we don't have ring on, uh, at the time. We didn't have ring on the door and, and access to that. So the community's telling us, hey, Pastor, like this is going on, that's going on. But the greatest success of when I was able to create 30 gardens in the Midwest during the time I was living there was being able to use returning citizens, God's children, that whatever legal mistakes they made, they've written their wrongs, they don't deserve that label, and now they're able to move forward in what God has placed in their hearts and their lives so they can live to their full, full, full potential. They weren't able to get jobs with a record. The ban the box is still an issue in our in our society today. But they learned trades when they were incarcerated. They learned skills when they were incarcerated. I had to find a way, how can I allow that gift of the trade and skill that they have to then be manifested in a therapeutic and healthy way that allows them and that's the opportunity to feel their worth and their value so that they have a greater self-esteem so that they can hold their head up high and say, I've contributed to society and I might be able to do something. So I did that with seven individuals with the first garden who had records. They were able to learn how to write uh, for seed grants. I was teaching them that skill. Many of them didn't know how to type. Their Guam was like two words a minute was teaching them that, which took time, uh, was showing them the areas where once they get the money and we have the fiduciary that can help them, you know, get the check in the person's name for the business, where to go and get the seed and to get the soil and to get, you know, the fertilizers and everything. Uh, utilizing YouTube, quite a bit of different techniques of how to do crossbreeding, um, but also how to do stuff during the winter they started getting an interest in it and a knack into it. And from that, they started learning, okay, the pastor just taught us how to organize. Then he just delegated the work to us. And his third philosophy is to duplicate. So they learned how to take what they learned to go into a different area of the city and to basically duplicate what they learned. And it worked. 
and I was along them every step of the way. I mean, I look at um, the, the book of Kings, uh, chapter 19, verse 1, 1 Kings 19, Elijah's called these two prophets, minor and major, they're walking side by side, even though the, the cloak or the mantle from Elijah has been trans transferred to Elisha, knowing that even though it's mentor mentee, that they're walking side by side one another. They're not <laughs> one's leading and one's following and one's distant. I'm walking side by side because we are equals. Whatever the penitentiary wants to say, whatever the legal system wants to say, whatever society wants to say, um, we're still strong, beautiful and gifted children of God who both happen to be black. So I was doing this with, um, with sisters in Christ, with brothers in Christ. Um, I was dealing with individuals that were part of the LGBT community uh, that felt as though that they had been outcasted from the church. And because of these, these gardens, they, were, they felt a deeper presence and a deeper spirit to God, to their creator. There were folks that never even, they'll never to this day know what a Lutheran is, but they say, I'm, I'm a member of that Lutheran church. I didn't go to the catechism. I didn't go through confirmation, first communion, but I'm connected to this church because they taught me something. And the, the part that bothers me is it was a pastor that brought them to the church, not the people in the pews who grew up in the church. So that's always going to be an issue. But when I saw these gardens growing uh, in Chicago and in uh, Kenosha and in Milwaukee, um, I started doing that in areas like Minneapolis when I did my internship uh, in Hampton, Virginia. Uh, I was able to even do that in Baltimore where we had more resources that we could work with. But there's definitely a therapeutic aspect to all of this. Um, the biggest piece I want to say is it, it allowed them to develop. And this isn't just people who are quote unquote returning citizens, but these are just individuals who wanted to contribute to um, God's creation. They learned different skills. They saw the effects of these skills, but they also were able to see what God could do, would do, and has done in their lives. And when they realized that this isn't for us, this is for a greater purpose, that's where I knew that success was actually being formed, that people weren't doing it for themselves anymore. The churches weren't doing this and trying to build fences and, and keep people out, that people were doing this for the common good. I had to help the same folks that were challenged with environmental justice being uh, something that's only for white people to not only learn that the garden was an opportunity, but when we did our lighting upgrade through Baltimore Gas and Electric to replace all the lighting with energy efficient um, and energy saving light bulbs to also show that composting isn't a disgusting thing and it can be done in the city if you do it the right way. <laughs> These are different little tidbits that folks were learning for the first time and they were seeing how to reduce their carbon footprint which ended up leading us to um, endorsing the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act, which ends up putting a tax on the bigwigs, a carbon tax, which in essence is now circling and being funded down to put money in the pockets of those who are in the uh, poverty category and lower middle class 
category. But it's a bill right now that hopefully gets passed one day that I've been working very extensively with the help of um, the organization that is really pushing, and this is their whole goal in a bipartisan way, pushing this uh, initiative, which is Citizens Climate Lobby. Yeah, they're really, really good. Yeah. The, and that ties well to one of the points I want to emphasize that, that was in your kind of beginning, literally, as a, as a pastor, you were talking about really that you're rooted in community organizing um, sort of naturally. That's, that's your, one of your primary motivations and, and connections to ministry. It sounds to me like you had, or rather have, incredible gifts as a as a pastor as a as a voice for christianity as a connector for people of faith that are trying to understand and articulate all of these things that are uh, complex about modern life and and um, inner life and and yet what really motivated you was the idea of getting out into the community and making a difference in people's lives i admire that so much i i cannot tell you, and I relate to that also really strongly. One of the things that has driven me to not be very active in the church is that I look at the church and, and just can't, you know, I don't understand what's going on. It's like, there are so many issues right outside the doors. And as you said, kind of people go into the building, they have their moment of reconnection, renewal, and then they go back out into the world and I think feel disempowered or, or unable to really make a difference. And meanwhile, I'm, I just feel like, man, there, you know, here we are in this age of need. And there's always been an age of need, but there are so many opportunities to exercise your, your ethos or your faith or your beliefs. And that's really what we need. That's clearly what is being called for in these, uh, at least New Testament kind of texts. Mm -hmm. um, and so again, I just, my deepest sincerest gratitude to you for being one of these maybe new kinds of leaders in the way people define church definitely thank you for that definitely that's so wonderful and and then the fact that you are so far above and beyond what most of us can imagine getting done is, is pretty pretty awesome too um i want to ask you about back to the the root idea of how to properly talk about the Black American identity in terms of just the naming of it. And, and so in hearing you talk today, I want to lightning round, I guess, check in on. Yeah, yeah. I understand better now what black public means. And, and that for me, you know, saying I'm a white person, there's, there's not a whole lot of baggage in that. But saying that you're a black person feels like, I don't know what I'm saying here. You know, I don't know if that's cool or not on any level anymore, even though, as I mentioned to you when we spoke a few weeks ago, like I grew up wanting to be a, a jazz musician. Yeah, yeah. My heroes were black men, you know, mm -hmm. literally. I mean, I can name dozens and dozens and dozens of musicians that I just thought, man, that person is really in touch and, and really someone to admire. And I could go on about that forever, but to be, in, in a nutshell on that, to be someone who is self-taught and becomes a great artist, I admire that as well in, in ways that I wish our society would really embrace. And, and this is one aspect of kind of the black American cultural identity that we do recognize to some degree. We have, you know, sports celebrities and music celebrities and famous actors now and, and things that people who really, really uh, have 
created their own genre, created their own music, created their own way of being that the rest of us try and imitate, you know? Yeah. I, I, I'm just floored by that. But in back to the idea of terminology and trying to figure out, is it a hyphenated identity? Is it a, you know, is it a two word identity? Is it a one word identity? That kind of thing. What occurs to me is that when we're talking about black public, what we're really referring to is the, the racism, not the identity of black people, but the fact that people of, of dark color live in a context of racism. And that's what we're identifying, not the identity of the, of the public, which is kind of what African-American is trying to get at is a cultural identity, but a black public identity is just really calling out the fact that this is a, a a position that you are sort of unfortunately endowed with of being put in the position of having racism put on you over and over and over again through the system, through individuals. Um, and I want to check in with you on that and see if that rings true. And so there's like when I was talking to Vance, you know, one of the questions I asked him was, uh, can I say WADO? So W-A-D-O. Mm -hmm. He said, well, if you're talking to a Cherokee person, and suddenly I was like, oh, I get it, because I lived in New York for a while. You know, you don't talk to Puerto Rican people in the same way you talk to Dominican people or Haitian people. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's so much diversity in culture. And one of the things that the great, some of the great Native American thinkers have pointed out is that white people think everyone should think like them. And so they apply this real kind of uh, template to the world often and want everything to be kind of simple. And what we're perhaps talking about here is that the black public refers to this public that has racism put on them. The identity of the individual then is, is according to a, you know, a much more personalized paradigm, a much more relational paradigm where the better I know you, the better I know how to navigate that stuff. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I'm not doing a good job of asking questions, but I wanna check in. That's all good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what's your take on that? Yeah, I, I definitely believe that there's a cultural normality that that we see within the kind of this commodification of the word black. Uh, uh, historically speaking, I mean, there was a word uh, time we were being called Negro and uh, you know, colored, then black, then African American, and then we're kind of seeing history repeat itself, uh, where now it's just black. We're in that we're in that stage um, where I think we do put the commodification on ourselves, but I also believe that the white society that I mentioned uh, also puts that label on us. And it's interesting with the um, the conversation we have with Vance earlier. Um, I have so many individuals that are white that talk to me and they say before they can even like get the word out or their thought or whatever you know should i say african-american should i say black uh, should I say african descent um i personally don't have time to like track all those words that i'm not maybe that's the millennial in me i'm like let's just go with black like i mean that's what it is uh others you know uh, are very more uh strict on that they you know you will call me you know afro-caribbean african-american african descent um and i understand where the united nations is coming with, with that with that particular um topography i, I understand 
Uh, is that the black public terminology, the UN? The um, African descent. African descent. Is, okay. is what they, they use uh, at the UN. Um, but for me, personally, I'm, I'm just going to say black. <laughs> just, I, I think even when I have children, I'll say black. Um, I, can, I, I can go through the history lesson with them. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, I mean, the generations coming after, uh, they're not going to be as immersed in that history, that culture. Um, they'll probably embrace it, but that's as far as it goes. Um, I, I don't see anybody using the term colored anymore. Uh, but, but who knows, it might come up down the road where it's like, you'll identify me as colored or um, I'm Negro or whatever. But I'm, I'm always going to just say, if we just, um, although we talk about the root, I think about the movie Birth of a, of a Nation, uh, the newest one that, that came out in um, 2016 with uh, Nate Parker uh, playing Nat Turner. Uh, there was a particular scene where um, one of his colleagues, uh, who's also a slave, um, is about to um, kill one of the uh, slave masters uh, in the midst of this uh, kind of battle that they're going through. And uh, Nat Turner, uh, that character, if you will, uh, he stops him right, right in his tracks and he says, no, the root, not the branch. And I, that stuck with me, that, that particular scene, ever since I've seen that in the theaters uh, on the South Side of Chicago, I, I've always believed in that, that, that we're trying to address the root of issues, not, not the branch. I'm, I'm trying to address, uh, address um, what is um, really the infectious disease of racism in this country not the branch, which is name calling, which is uh, ways in which that we're treating the legal system, the academy. I'm trying to get to the root of that. That's why I said racism isn't a born trait. It's something that people learn. So when we're talking about how are we labeling ourselves, um, I, and, I, and I play the same role as some of my colleagues that were like, well, you know, what, what do I call you, African-American, Black? African national, African descent. I said, well, what do I call you? Anglo-Saxon, European-American? I mean, European, Western Thank European, you. you know? <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. It's just like, yeah. <laughs> and I learned that particular, uh, I would say quarrel, if you will, for lack of better words. I, I had to learn that when I was introduced to this thing called Ludafis in Minneapolis. And there was different ways that people prepared Ludafisk. I didn't know what it was. Somebody bought a ticket for me and said, I want you to try it. Uh, just like Rocky Mountain Oysters. Still didn't know what that was until I, I, I was a city slicker that, that had to learn the hard way. But with Ludafisk, I'm learning the culture behind that dish. And I'm a foodie. I love food. I really do. I love good food. I have a lot of dietary restrictions, but I love food and I love to travel. So that's kind of where COVID has been um, harmful for me. But I learned the culture behind Ludafisk, that there was a way that Norwegians made it, a way that Germans made it, a way that Swedish folks made it. But when I'm talking to white people, I, I, I'm trained, you know, black and white. I'm not trained, you know, are you Norwegian descent? I mean, they tell me all that stuff, but do I really care? No, <laughs> you know, to be transparent, to keep it a buck, I, I, I don't. And that's got me in trouble. Um, when, when I talk to, uh, uh, 
folks that are from uh, that have a Caribbean descent or have a South, South American, Central American descent to them. Um, I didn't know what Latino, Latinx, all that meant. Uh, we were taught the word Hispanic. And then I'm learning, you know, that's that's improper to use too. Uh, I was taught to say African, you know, and now I'm learning it's African national. So my biggest thing is I, if we know what the racial epithet is, cognitively speaking, we know and we're making a conscious decision on whether to use that in a derogatory and defamatory and disrespectful way and to not use it to be respectful to thy neighbor, to love thy neighbor as Christ first loved us, as God first loved us. So when we get that out the way, I'm not as bothered by if somebody calls me black versus African-American versus African national versus African descent versus this African heritage. But I'm willing to engage in the dialogue because as long as they're not using the racial epithet that many folks use behind closed doors and now we're seeing with all these hidden body cameras footage and all that with technology advancing, they're using it people all the time. And that people who have low self-esteem of one another are using towards one another in a um, endearing way, if you will, which I disagree with that concept. As long as we're not using those racial epithets toward one another in dialogue, and we're not asking, is it okay for me to say that word when we know good and well historically with the trauma that has come from that word and the power that comes from that word of people of different backgrounds using it towards people of African descent, toward black, to the black public, then we can engage in dialogue. But that takes a level of spiritual, mental, and emotional maturity for people to be at that level. I used to be so uncomfortable when I would hear white people uh, start saying the words to their favorite rap song that was explicit, knowing I'm in earshots distance, saying the word and looking around to see how I'm going to react. As I teach generations behind me, I'm only responsible for my actions and reactions to situations. Am I going to challenge every single white person that uses the word in my presence? No, because I don't have the time, the energy, or the capacity or dedication to fight all those battles. But when it's dialogues like this that actually have meaning and are effective, when it's critical conversations and difficult dialogues that I can have with people that I trust, I'm doing my part in that battle. But when I cease to have conversations all together, that's when I'm a disservice to my community that I represent. Because we have to have this dialogue. I don't care who people voted for in any election. If we can't have civil dialogue about where our values, our principles, and where uh, our mindsets are, then there's no point in having the dialogue. It's gotta be civil. I mean, it, it, it just does. If, if it's not, then we're just talking at each other and not to one another. Yeah, there's just, it's there's probably the biggest thing that's coming out of this in a sense, the biggest simple picture for me is how deep each one of these kind of columns of questions are. And, yeah. um, because I have so many things I want to say and, and throw in and, and hear your response. And, you know, it, it's, um, 
it is important that we continue in this way, either, whether we get to talk together or in the various other people that we talk to. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I appreciate all that so much. And I just wish we were further along.